My name is Debbie Ruth, and this is my story. A little over a year ago, my husband went through a medical crisis that happened during the middle of the night. He suffered a heart attack and went into cardiac arrest. Everything that happened that night, from the decisions I made, to the fast-acting paramedics, to the trained hands of doctors and nurses, happened in perfect synchronization. Thankfully, everything turned out just fine. But for weeks after that, I had this feeling, and I was unable to put my finger on exactly what it was. Finally, one day it hit me. Everything that happened that night was being guided by someone other than me. I was not in control. God was. I wish I could put into words the feelings that I had at that moment. After a couple more weeks of wandering, I asked my good friend B if I could attend church with her. So I met her at Lakeland one Sunday morning and we made our way into the sanctuary. As soon as the service started, I knew that this was a journey I had to make. I went through the summer months still attending services, but trying to find the answers that I so needed in my life, the things that I desperately wanted, peace, patience, and the answers to what had happened. I talked with Pastor Garrett and started reading the Bible. Now reading the Bible did offer me comfort and a sense of calm, but peace and patience were still eluding me. I went on walks alone, hoping for answers from God, thinking that just being by myself would help. In the fall, I saw Guided Through the Wilderness was starting, and I knew it was another journey I needed to make. Guided Through the Wilderness starts with a group reading an inspirational passage, walking along a trail, and then taking a few minutes to journal before heading back to the group and sharing our experiences and praying together. All it took was that first meeting in October. We read a passage, I walked a bit, then sat down in the wilderness and started writing. Thoughts, reflections about the passage we had just read, or whatever was in my heart. In retrospect, it seems like something so simple to do. Yet in that moment, I finally found the peace I so desperately was seeking. Week after week I would go, warm or cold, windy or calm, damp or dry, so I could have those few precious moments with no distractions to speak to the Lord and gaze in awe at His creations. I was talking to God while listening to the birds sing that He had created, or watching the ripples along the lake that were peaceful or watching the seasons change before my eyes. Eventually the course ended, but I continued to practice what I had learned. A few weeks ago, I was faced with another family crisis when my 92-year-old father succumbed to COVID. I was here at Lakeland when I got a call that he was in a medical crisis, and once again, I had to make a decision. But once again, I did not make it alone. God was with me. Shortly after that, Guided Through the Wilderness started up again. And just like the first time, it's helping me find peace, comfort, a sense of calm, 
and a connection with the Holy Spirit I never thought I could have. Even though my time spent in the wilderness is brief, the benefits I receive will be with me forever. My name is Debbie Ruth, and this is my story. Lord, wherever we find ourselves today, may we know today that we are under your care. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Have you noticed this palm tree is looking bad? <laughs> yeah, I, so it looked just like that one when I got here this morning. And, and by service, this is what we're left with. Um, it's kind of how life is, isn't it? I mean, it could just turn. You know, one morning everything's fine, and by late morning, it's not. Um, I, think, I think we're going to find that true in our scripture today, too. We are in Ezra. We're studying the book of Ezra this morning. We're in Ezra chapter 7. Um, and this message has a lot of stuff for you guys who are like Bible nerds and Bible history nerds and just love those fun facts and the backstory and all that. It's got all that. So that'll be fun for, for, for you folks. Um, it's also, I think, got a message of hope for all of us. So I hope we can find that together. We're in Ezra chapter 7. Last week we did Ezra chapter 6. So here's your fun first Bible nerd moment. Between Ezra 6 and Ezra 7, 57 years pass. As we go from one chapter to the other, 57 years have passed last week while we were, we were doing other things. If you're familiar with the book of Esther, um, Esther happens entirely in between chapter 6 and chapter 7 of Ezra. Um, here's something else that's happened. We ended last week our message in chapter 6. They finished the temple. They celebrated their first Passover. They were very grateful to God. As we open chapter 7, something has drifted over the last 57 years. Uh, they are not really following the law of Moses anymore. They've gotten rather lazy with the whole thing. Um, and here in chapter 7 is now the first time we actually meet the person, Ezra. The book is named after him, but he does not appear until chapter 7. And Ezra is... Uh, he's a Bible nerd, everyone. Uh, he's the only person in scripture described as a priest and a scribe. We get the feeling that all he does is study the law of Moses and copy scrolls. And I mean, no one knows the law of Moses better than Ezra. And as that's a band in the 90s as well. You picked up on that. Um, and so it's good. Uh, okay. And so uh, he, <laughs> you were there too. Um, and so as Ezra looks at how Jerusalem is living, he, or, yeah, how they're living in Jerusalem, it just makes him sad. And he just wants to help lead the people back to God and, 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 and the beauty of this law that he knows so well. Ezra just has a problem, okay? Actually, four problems. The first problem is, is that he doesn't live anywhere near Jerusalem. So we have a map today. You can't do Bible nerd stuff without a map. So... This is where Jerusalem and the land of Israel is. Ezra lives over here in Babylon, the capital of the Persian Empire. So all he's watching comes from news that he hears. Uh, second problem. He can't just go home because he feels like it and he misses it. This is the Persian Empire and he can't move from one city to another without some sort of official decree that allows him to do that. Um, and even if it were, even if he had the decree, it's not safe 
to go. See, Persia controls almost everything shown on this map here at this time. But over here in Egypt, they're in rebellion against Persia. So if he were to travel this road, the closer he gets to this side of the map, the more likely he is to meet some sort of rebel military group on the, on the road. And there's already priests and scribes who live in Jerusalem. Are they following the law of Moses? Not very well. Are they super lazy? Probably. But they're not going to want someone like Ezra showing up, uh, fixing them all and telling them they're doing it wrong. So he lives far away. He's not allowed to go home. And if, even if he was, it's not safe. And even if he got there, nobody would probably want him there. So, you know, why bother? I mean, it's pretty hopeless when you've got that many different forces allied against you, people enthroned over you, circumstances making your situation bad. That's what this story is all about. I think back to when I was in college, talk about hopeless situations. I know some of you feel like you're in hopeless situations this morning. Uh, in college, I really, I was new to Christianity and I love to talk about Jesus to other people. I love hearing what they believe. And, and one time I was in the computer lab and I was talking with a witch, like she practiced witchcraft and spells and all that sort of thing. And I, I asked her like, why do you believe in witchcraft? Like, aren't you afraid that you're going to get to the end of your life and realize you, you put all your hope into something that's kind of a, like a fairy tale? And she said, it's true because I believe it. She said, reality is relative, and what you believe becomes real. I said, now I've heard that truth is relative, but I never heard that reality is relative. So you're saying like you could turn yourself into a cat because you believe that you can? And she said, yes. And I said, would you be willing to help me believe by doing it right now? And she said she could, but she didn't want to, which I thought was a horribly convenient answer. Um, <laughs> And, but then we had to go to class, so that was the end of that until the next day. I go back to the computer lab, and I log on to my email, and a screen pops up that says, you're locked out of all campus technology until you visit the Dean of Student Affairs for charges of religious harassment and inflammatory language for an event which occurred in the computer lab yesterday. I thought, what on earth? I didn't, I didn't get the feeling we were having that kind of a discussion. So I started thinking, like, what am I going to say to the dean to explain what happened? And that's when I realized this is not going to go well for me. I'm a Protestant at a Catholic university. I'm a fairly conservative college student on a very liberal campus. And I'm a man accused of harassing a woman. I'm like, this is, this is not going to go well. Are they going to expel me? I don't know. I don't know what they're planning to do. Pretty hopeless. I thought the least I could do is go talk to her. I didn't mean to be offensive toward her. I thought we were just talking about what we believe. So, I, you know, I went and asked her. And I said, I'm sorry if, you know, if, if, if what I was doing was offensive to you yesterday. She goes, oh, it wasn't. I said, well, I, I have to go see the dean for harassing you. She said, what? She said, I didn't even tell anybody about our discussion. And we figured out somebody else in that computer lab probably heard us talking. They were offended and turned in the complaint on her behalf. So I said, would you, would you be willing to go to the dean with me just to give your side? She said, absolutely. So 7 o'clock that night, we go to the dean's office. Now, I think he thinks I've brought my girlfriend for moral support or something because he really looked perturbed. And he was like, who is this we have with us? And she said, well, I'm actually the, the person that he was talking to yesterday in the computer lab. And he rocked back in his big leather chair. And he was like, oh, well, all right. So, well, how did you feel during that 
incident yesterday. And she says, look, I don't believe anything that he believes, but I find it really interesting. She said, this is in fact why I came to a liberal arts institution. I wanted to be exposed to new ideas and I wanted to have discussions with people who think differently than I do. And I wanted to have the way I think about things challenged. And that's what was happening yesterday. Oh my gosh, it was like she served up a piece of double chocolate cake to this guy. Because, you know, liberal academics in the early 90s, the only thing they loved more than full inclusion was a free exchange of ideas. And so he goes, he goes oh, that's exactly what we want happening on, our, happening on our campus. He said, I am so glad and impressed that you two are, who have such diverse viewpoints are able to just talk and be civil and be friends. He said, I wish this was happening all over the campus. Of course, we'll reinstate all your stuff. And, and that's great. You guys just you're just what this university is all about. I went in there thinking, I'm going to be expelled. I have no hope. I didn't even have to say anything. I like didn't talk at all. She did the whole thing. In fact, after that discussion, I, I graduated at the end of that semester. And I gathered her and all the coven. Um, there was like six of them. I know that's only half a coven, but it was a very small school. And... Um, <laughs> I said, can I take you guys out to Applebee's, uh, my treat? Because I, I want to tell you about Jesus. I've never done that. And the leader of the coven, she goes, oh, Garrett, you've been so curious about our beliefs these last two years. We can give you a lunch to tell us about your Jesus. And so I went to Applebee's with six witches and told them about Jesus. And that's, a, that's another story for another time. Um, but, uh, you know, whatever circumstance seems to be over you, whoever seems to be enthroned over you, that's not who's on the throne. God is on the throne. I got into a tangle with the hospital several years ago. Actually, many now. My, when my son was born. See, when my daughter was born, same hospital. When my daughter was born, they gave us like a year to pay our medical bill, which was like a big one. And, but when my son was born, something changed in the leadership of the hospital. And they called us right after we got home and said, you have 30 days to pay this medical bill or you're going to collections. I said, I can't pay that big of a bill in 30 days, especially not now that I'm a full-time seminary student. I have hardly any income at all. They said, all right, send us your forms and you know, prove your hardship. And so I sent in all the forms and they called back a couple weeks later and said, you don't qualify. Now you have 14 days to pay your medical bills or you're going to collections. I said, how can I not qualify? I don't even have much of an income. And they said, yeah, but the income you do have, you send 10% of it to your church. I said, okay. They said, well, if you can do that, you can pay your medical bill. I said, wait a minute. That is a religious obligation. And she said, well, this is St. So-and-so Hospital. We are the church, and you can send that money to us. That's what I thought. But it was really, I thought, this is, this is pretty hopeless. I mean, that's a pretty firm stance. But something about that, we are the church. You can send that money to us. I thought, that, that don't seem right. So I called a little higher up the chain and a little higher up the chain. It turns out at St. So-and-so Hospital that when you call high enough, you, eventually you're talking to a nun. Like a Catholic nun sits above the whole thing. And so I left her a message and she called me back at home. And she said, Mr. Lee, I'm so sorry for the way you were treated. I, I want you to know that is not at all the spirit in which we want to have the financial dealings of this hospital. And it also is not in keeping with the evangelistic goals of this hospital. So the person who said that to you, they're being instructed differently. And I see that you're studying to be minister. So blessings to you in your ministry. And I see that you have a new son. What a joy and blessing that is from the Lord. We would like to cancel your whole medical bill if we could. So... 
one week I'm going to collections and it's hopeless. And the next week, God sends a servant of the Lord. He says, never mind, you don't have to pay anything. Whatever circumstances seem to be over you and whoever seems to have power over you, they're not on the throne, right? God is on the throne. So if you're a student this morning and you're staring down the end of the semester and your grades are here and you have this many weeks left, you think it's hopeless, why even bother? I say, keep doing what's right. Keep working hard. Keep walking with God. You don't know what God may do in the last minutes of this semester. My daughter's just spent the semester with a, a really bad teacher and a really bad class. And everybody in the class had D's and F's. And, you know, but they just keep plugging away because what choice do they have? Well, the dean shows up last week in the classroom and says, I'm going to make a few adjustments to the grades in this class. And everyone zooms from D's and F's to A's and B's. So you just don't know what God may do. Um, some of you may feel like um, you've got a hopeless person in your life, right? You've been fighting with them for years or the fight's really bad they're really mean or you did something really mean and you just kind of think, why bother? Like, why tell them that hurts me? They don't care. Or why try to apologize? They're, they'll never forgive me. You know, why bother? And I just want to say, keep seeking Jesus. Keep speaking peace. Keep seeking peace. Keep looking for forgiveness. Keep offering forgiveness. These are the right things to do and you just don't know what God may do because that person is not on the throne over you. God is on the throne. When I first became pastor here in 2007, it was August. In September, I dug into the church finances to figure out that. And that's when I discovered that um, at that time, our budget was set way, way too high for the amount of giving that we had. And we were on schedule to have a $189,000 shortfall. And this is how I was going to begin ministry. I thought, oh no. And then a letter comes from the bank. Turns out the loan conditions for, that this building was purchased under, the first term was very short. And then it ended, and then they were going to set new terms with a new interest rate. And the prime interest rate at that time was 7.75%. And it's 2007. Do you remember what's about to happen in mortgage lending in 2008? So I've got this letter, I'm like, oh no, like whatever, however in the hole we are, we're about to be way, way more in the hole. And then I opened the letter, October 29th, 2007, in accordance with the terms of your loan, the payment is being changed as indicated below. New interest rate, 4.5%, way below prime. So I called Tim Barr, because this is very confusing, and Tim Barr, leader in the church who helps us with all these loans and mortgages and banks and stuff, and he goes, I don't know why they sent you that low of a term. I don't know why they did this without any negotiation, without you asking, without you having to sign any papers. They've just mailed you this through the mail. He said, but here's what I want you to do, Garrett. I want you to make three copies of that letter and put it into three different file cabinets so that it can never be lost. Because at some point, if someone may try to come and walk this back and you're gonna wanna pull that document out. And that's what we did. So now, could I find my copy for this sermon? No, but Tim still had his. <laughs> because that's who Tim is. <laughs> this document is a miracle from God. It's 
this document is a miracle from God. So I don't know where you are, you know, in your hopeless situation. Maybe it's with work or with money, and it just doesn't seem like, you know, you're going to be able to stay open or keep your job. Or, but, you know, keep working hard. Keep being true. Don't seek vengeance. Don't seek some quick way out. Um, know that God is on the throne over this circumstance, not those circumstances. Your document may be on its way in the mail already, and you just haven't seen it yet. God is already at work. Do you know who else saved documents? Ezra. Because Ezra is a huge document nerd, right? He's a scribe and a priest. In fact, I don't know if you know this, but Ezra Nehemiah used to be one scroll. It got split later for some convenience purpose. But Ezra Nehemiah used to be one scroll. And what Ezra is, is it's a scrapbook of Israel's homecoming. It's original documents that were saved and then a little story put around them, just like you would put museum plaques around documents so that you could fully understand the story and the wonder of this document that you're looking at. But if you read Ezra, what it really is is lists of treasure they were given, uh, lists of people who traveled the road home, and royal decrees that allowed them to do all this stuff. And then story put around it. You can say like, look, that's not just a weird bank document. That's a miracle of what God did. And so Ezra chapter 7 contains one of these um, documents that has been saved. Now, here's your super Bible nerd moment. Most of the Bible's written in Hebrew, but this, there's a little section here of chapter 7 that's actually written in Aramaic, a whole other language, um, because that is the uh, language of the Persian Empire at that time. Because this is a decree from the king of Persia. It's, and Ezra has copied it, even in its original language, into the Bible to say, you wouldn't believe God did this if I didn't show you the document right here where it happened. And so, out of honor to Ezra, the Bible nerd, let's, let's read this decree that he wanted to save for us and, and, and find the story behind it. So it starts out with this intro. King Artaxerxes has given a copy of the following letter to Ezra, the priest and scribe who studied and taught the commands and decrees of the Lord to Israel. And here's where it kicks into the Aramaic. Halach nigmet. No, I don't know Aramaic. Um, <laughs> from Artaxerxes, the king of kings, to Ezra, the priest, the teacher of the law of the God of heaven, greetings. I decree that any of the people of Israel in my kingdom, including the priests and Levites, may volunteer to return to Jerusalem with you. And that's it. Ezra's first two problems are gone. He can go home, and he can go home with a big group if he can get them to go with him. It goes on. I and my council of seven thereby instruct you to conduct an inquiry into the situation in Judah and Jerusalem based on your God's law, which is in your hand. We also commission you to take with you silver and gold, which we are freely presenting as an offering to the God of Israel who lives in Jerusalem. Furthermore, you are to take any silver and gold that you may obtain from the province of Babylon, as well as the voluntary offerings of the people and the priests that are presented for the temple of their God in Jerusalem. These documents, uh, nope, these donations are to be used specifically for the purchase of bulls, rams, male lambs, and the appropriate grain offerings and liquid offerings, all of which will be offered on the altar of the temple of your God in Jerusalem. Any silver and gold that is left over may be used in whatever way you and your colleagues feel is the will of your God. But as for the cups we are entrusting to you for the service of the temple of your God, Deliver them all to the God of Jerusalem. If you need anything else for your God's temple, for any similar needs, you may take it from the royal treasury. 
I, Artaxerxes, the king, hereby send this decree to all the treasurers in the province west of the Euphrates River. You are to give Ezra the priest and teacher of the law of the God of heaven. Whatever he requests, if you are to give him up to 7,500 pounds of silver, 500 bushels of wheat, 550 gallons of wine, 550 gallons of olive oil, and an unlimited supply of salt. Be careful to provide whatever the God of heaven demands for his temple. For why should we risk bringing God's anger against the realm of the king and his sons? Why would Artaxerxes do something like this? Well, I mean, the Bible's answer is that God is moving him so that Ezra can get home and turn the people back to God. But what's Artaxerxes thinking in his own head while he's doing this? So could we pull the map back up? So this is Persia and, you know, Egypt's in uh, rebellion. And perhaps, perhaps Artaxerxes thinking, you know, Israel's between me and Egypt. This might be a good time to have them happier with me than sad, stronger than weak, loyal rather than disloyal, so they're not joining Egypt against me. God may be using a, just a little bit of political paranoia to get Ezra home so the hearts of people can be changed. Now, that's entirely different than why is he giving him all this treasure to sacrifice to your God and please your God and follow the laws of your God? Well, remember what we said last week about the strange beliefs of Persians. Um, Persians didn't believe that a God or any gods created the world. They believed the world came from this chaos. Gods were in it, but it kind of the world created itself. And... Um, I mean, they didn't believe that there was one God who oversaw everything. They thought there were many gods. In fact, the Persian kings believed they were gods. Artaxerxes thought he was a god. And he was the god who started out controlling this spot of ground. And then because his god was awesome, controlled all this. That's why he keeps calling the Israelites God, the God of Israel, the God who lives in Jerusalem. That's why he says that like seven times. He's saying, your God controls this little spot of ground. Well, from his standpoint... If there's a God who lives here, why have him mad at me? Especially if he's between me and Egypt. So we can't have too many gods on your side. Now, it's not what Israel believes. Israel believes there's one God who made everything. And he's on the throne. But God is taking this strange belief of the Persians and using it to have his temple totally refurbished. And, and Ezra is telling us, like, look who's really on the throne. Like, who's God now? Who's giving up all the treasure to make this thing happen so it doesn't cost us anything? Because God is on the throne. So now he gets to come home. He has all he needs. He has a group of people. There's just one problem left. There's already priests and scribes living there who aren't really following God and are probably pretty lazy. And they're not going to want some reformer showing up telling them they're doing it wrong. Well, the decree is not over yet. I also decree that no priest, Levite, singer, gatekeeper, temple servant, or other worker in the temple of God will be required to pay tribute, customs, or tolls of any kind. Friends, there's nothing like 100% tax relief to get crooks to go along with you. I mean, these guys may not want Ezra coming back saying, you're doing it wrong, we're going to change anything, but he's holding a decree that says they'd never have to pay taxes again. So... I think they're probably just going to be quiet and go along with it this time because it helps their pocketbook. And then 
Ezra is put in charge of everything. Here's how the decree ends. And you, Ezra, are to use the wisdom your God has given you to appoint magistrates and judges who know your God's laws to govern all the people in the province west of the Euphrates River. Teach the law to anyone who does not know it. Anyone who refuses to obey the law of your God and the law of the king will be punished immediately, either by death, banishment, confiscation of goods, or imprisonment. Now, Ezra doesn't use all these powers. However, what Artaxerxes is saying is we have four ways to punish people in Persia and I'm giving Ezra the power to use any of the four that he wants. He's completely in charge. So we started this morning saying that Ezra's situation was so hopeless, why even go home? And by the end of this decree, God's made, made a way for him to go home, to go home with others in safety, to be received well and be in charge of everything and have all the resources that he needs. You just don't know you just don't know what God can do because God is on the throne and not, not our circumstances. So I don't know what it is you may be going through this morning, but I want you to know that, that God is on the throne. There's one other person who knew this, probably even better than Ezra, and that is, of course, Jesus Christ. So the white cloth is still on the cross because we're still in Easter season and we're still um, studying the, the wonder of the resurrection of Jesus on Easter. We're still saying, he is risen. risen and so, but don't forget that Jesus had his own hopeless night. He came in Palm Sunday with everyone celebrating him. And by the end of the week, that same crowd is crying, crucify him. And all his friends have abandoned him. His best friend who said, well, I'll stay here until I die, even if everybody else runs away. He denies three times that he even knows Jesus. Once to a teenage servant girl. He has been put through two fake trials with fake witnesses and been found guilty in both of them. And now he's sitting before Pilate, the Roman governor, who sits on the throne over Israel. And Pilate could care less. Pilate just doesn't want to have a riot during this holiday. So if saving Jesus will prevent a riot during this holiday, he'll do that. If killing Jesus will prevent a riot during the holiday, then he'll do that. And we, we all know how that turned out. But there was a moment when Pilate's trying to figure out which way to go that he takes Jesus in the back room. John chapter 19. He took Jesus back into the headquarters again and asked him, Where are you from? But Jesus gave no answer. Why don't you talk to me? Pilate demanded. Don't you realize I have the power to release you or crucify you? Then Jesus said, you would have no power over me at all unless it were given to you from above. Jesus knows he's not on the throne over me. God is on the throne. Pilate pronounces sentence. Jesus dies on the cross and he's buried. But then Sunday morning, who's on the throne? As Jesus rises from the dead and becomes king of all the universe. And this moment when humans have done the very worst thing that humans have ever done is turned by God into the thing that allows humans to be saved. Jesus' death and resurrection as payment for sin becomes a thing that lets us all come to God because God is on the throne. And so I don't know what you're suffering through this morning. I don't know how hopeless it seems. But I know that if you walk with God, that he is on the throne. So I would like to pray for you if I could.
I know some of you are probably so lost in the anxiety and the fear of it all, you wouldn't even know how to pray. So could I pray for you? So let's take a moment to pray. Lord Jesus, I don't know everyone here and what they're dealing with, but you do. You are not surprised by what has happened. And Lord, now we look to you to be Lord over us and not our circumstances and not these difficult people and times that we face. Now, Lord, we know that we may not get what we want from this prayer, but we are your children, and so we're going to pray it just the same. Will you rescue us? Will you save us, Lord? I mean, you're on the throne, and the outcome is yours, but we just don't know what to ask except, uh, Daddy, help us. And we leave you, uh, we leave that prayer to you and in your hands, Lord. It is the name of Jesus who has been through this before and knows what it's like. May we have his peace. And in his name, amen.